You're listening to Wait Long by the River. This podcast is our first live recording outside of the cultural capital of Melbourne. Mastermind Canberra producer Meg O'Connell was in the audience for our show with Darren Hanlon, and she sent me a lovely email the next day. Not your typical love the show, can't wait till the next episode, yours sincerely, which I suppose... We get a couple of, not, not many, unfortunately. Meg's email read, Love the show. We should bring you out to Canberra for a show. Please find attached an itemized project budget for the show and a list of potential interviewees. Uh, there was one name on the list that jumped right out at me. He was an idol of mine, one of the top talents behind the rising tide of young poetry in Australia, Omar Bin Musa. Omar's touring in support of his new book, Here Come the Dogs, which is already turning into one of those volumes like The Slap that's just on everybody's bookshelf. He and I had perched on some bar stools in front of a really great crowd upstairs at Civic Pub and talked about why ordinary people's lives matter, why you'd never go into politics, spending your 30th birthday at Russell Crowe's house, and uh, how a successful novel suddenly makes all your old enemies into new friends. He closes the show with some amazing poetry, uh, stuff that he's never done anywhere else before. But I'll link to some more of his videos on the Facebook page, as well as his book and some other fun stuff. And if you like what you hear, come catch a live show at Sun Velvet Morning, first Wednesday of every month. Now, over to Omar. There, but there's just going to be a moment of silence while we like, while it's, so it's easy for me to edit. I said silence. <laughs> no, good. Hey, Canberra. Thank you so much for coming to Wait Long by the River, the show where we put one of those slanty cooking show mirrors up above the, the workbench of some of Australia's greatest creative minds so you can see how they slice and dice and make the delicious stuff that they make. Uh, yeah, woo, that's exactly right. This is special. Uh, we're upstairs at Civic Pub live in Canberra. It's so good to be home, wandering around, looking at the graffiti of Abyss and Hool on the walls. Thanks so much for Meg for putting the show on, by the way. It's Meg who did everything here. Uh, I have a nerve-wrackingly excellent guest tonight. He's someone that I've looked up to ever since I moved to Canberra. I was just wowed by him at event after event. Uh, he's a multiple Poetry Slam winner, the Australian and the Indian Ocean Poetry Slams. He's a hip-hop MC of note. Uh, he's a Queen Vian representative. Is it 2620? 2620. 2620. Adds up to a perfect 10. Please welcome Omar Musa. <laughs> Now, this is a funny opportunity to catch you because you have basically been professionally interviewed for the last, like, since July. So you're not, I'm not catching you in the cold. It's not like, like, you're a pro at this now. Kind of. I can still get thrown off. I'm a bit unsteady on my feet at times. Yeah, very good. I'm hoping. That's what well, you want, isn't it? What was the quote that came up on the radio today? If, if you're unstable, then that... Oh, I think, you know, if, if art makes you uneasy, uh, it's a good thing because it means that you consider notions that you hadn't thought of before, you question things that you had just received and it means that you're more capable of change after that. Fantastic. Well, the more uneasy both of us are, the better then. That's why we're way For up sure. high on these stools here. That's really yeah. good. Yeah, I, I feel safe. It's cool, except when I go for the wine behind me, then it's, yeah, it's terrifying. Uh, so you're touring a book, which I loved, which is such a relief because, you know, a friend writes a book and then you read it and you really hope it's not going to be that awkward thing mm. where you, the catalogue of ticks we were talking about before where you scratch your neck and look at your foot and you're like yeah it's really brave <laughs> yeah you never want to hear that oh that was so brave no this is rad you. I, I wish desperately that i had your phone number so i could send you like a gif of some guy jumping up and down in the air or whatever people do these days when they want to give someone a hug but they're really too far away it was a it's a real achievement man thank Great you book. 
For those of you who haven't read it, it's called Here Come the Dogs. How many Here Come the Dogs readers? It counts if you're halfway through. And you have to make noise because it's that's a cool. video, oral medium. <laughs> wow, that's way better. I can only see like two hands at the front. So good. It's a good uptake. Does that feel good, hearing people reading your book? Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, it was the most nerve-wracking experience that I've ever gone through, and it lasted about three years. So I sort of described it as having to sprint a marathon, you know, and it yep. was such a full-on experience that took me to such dark places, and I'd never... Uh, used so much perseverance in my life that to be able to get to the end of it and actually get it out there into the world and know that yeah. people are reading it, I'm stoked, man. It's really cool. And I get really weird people hitting me up about it as well of, of different ages, like this 85-year-old Scottish guy um, <laughs> had read it. Woo! And he has read it now four times and he bought it for three different people as Christmas presents. But this was like nice. two months ago. That's the ultimate compliment for any book or album. Yeah, and I just don't know exactly what it is that he's getting out of it. Like, as much as I like the book, it's just a really weird thing. Well, it obviously touches something in him, man. I mean, if you grew up in so. Glasgow, like, it's, it's rough. It's rough in Scotland. It's a scary place True. to True. Well, I've so never been there, so maybe. Get him. Yeah. yeah, my family fled there, so that's for much the same reason. So I have a little bit of a history there, but I didn't grow up in the mean streets of anywhere. Uh, I bought my second copy because I left... I was going to bring my copy and get it signed by you because people love signed things for some reason. And I forgot it, and I was in the airport, literally in the act of beating myself around the head about it, buying my bottle of water for the plane. And there it was, like, number five on the chart on the wall in the airport bookshop. Well, that's cool. Like, yeah, if only... <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. It reached number two at one point, which is... Really? Yeah, oh, number two that. on the readings list in July, so that's really awesome. You were ahead of the guy Flanagan who won the, the, the narrow road to the deep sea. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really... Well, awesome. I'm next, hopefully. <laughs> um, Anyway, I buy, I buy a copy immediately at extortionate airport prices. And she says, you know, it's really good that, that you bought that one, actually, because they're all signed. Wow. Um, and I said, all? <laughs> there are like 12, 15, 18 up there on the thing. And she's like, yeah, open it, open it. There's no signage anywhere saying these are all signed copies. Blow your heart on cash on this awesome book. But I open it up, and sure enough, it says, like, Omar Musa, Melbourne, 2014. Did you have some dead time in the airport or what? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I do just shamelessly go up to copies and come up. <laughs> I wrote that. <laughs> How do you know who to address it to? I heard of a, a, a really funny story about, I think, it was someone very famous. It was like Stephen King. It wasn't, but it was someone like that who saw someone thumbing through one of his books at an airport and was about to go up and sort of say, yeah, you know, you see that? I wrote that. Yeah, okay. And then the guy held it up to the guy at the counter and was just like, oh, what's this like? And the bloke was like, oh, it's fucking rubbish, mate. Oh, so good. And he kind of just like yeah. crept back into the shadows. Yeah. So afraid of doing that. Right. They made a good movie with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah. The book's rubbish. Just yeah. don't even, yeah, don't even go near it. Oh, well, you're not going to get that with the book. Oh, is there going to be a movie adaptation of the book? Is that a scoop? There's a few people talking about it. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. I hope a few people includes like Jerry Bruckheimer or yeah. Andrew Denton. I hear he's got some free time. Maybe, yeah, he could play Solomon or Alex. Yeah, nice. Oh, of course. <laughs> I was thinking it'd be cool to have Here Come the Dogs on Ice. And that sort of works in two different ways. Yeah, because the fire as well. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Oh, the, the edges could be melting in as you yeah. get closer to the edge. Totally. Yeah, so repressive. That's really good. Uh, you had some crazy high-profile recommendations this book, speaking of Andrew Denton. I mean, <laughs> it's one of the eye-catching things about the cover is you've got the transporting guy. Yeah, oh, Irvin gosh, Welsh. That was huge for me because I've looked up to him for a long time. I read Trainspotting first when I was 13 after going to the movie at Electric Shadows Cinema that when that still existed. Eye-opening? Yeah, it was. We sort of... I snuck in. My mum... Well, no, she, my mum accompanied me and helped yeah. me sneak in uh, by means of Come a trench on. coat. And then... <laughs> 
and once I got in, we, we walked through the door and it was the bit where Renton is just diving into the toilet bowl and swimming through uh, all the excrement. And I was just like, man, this is my type of movie, you know? Yeah, and then they chuck the glass over his shoulder and the thing and the bar brawl breaks yeah. out. And I just loved that book anyway. Yeah. So it was just crazy for me. I met Irvin a few years ago at Jaipur Literary Festival. Mm -hmm. And then this year, it was kind of funny. I knew it was going to be at Sydney Writers Festival. We arranged to meet up because we kept in touch over the years. And actually, this will sound like a name drop, and it is. But I had a huge debauched, drunken night out with him and Richard Flanagan, the guy who just won... The Booker Award. Did you lord it over him about how you were above him on the charts? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how was I to predict that he'd actually make something of himself? You know? <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> so... Yeah, but then at the end of the night, I told Irvin that I'd written this novel and I'd like him to look over it one time. And, and just as he kind of poured me into a cab, he, I was, he was just like, oh, if you need some help with your book, just, just let me know. And, and I was just like, sweet. And I was up at like 7 a.m. the next day with a manuscript, just put it through the letterbox at the, at the hotel. That makes me, the way you told that story makes me think that you wrote it in between getting pulled into the taxi at 7 a.m. Yeah. the next day. <laughs> just like, oh, all right, this is my chance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the weird thing, it was kind of like that with the first draft, actually, because I sort of talked my way in to a book deal using my conniving, wily charms. Nice and I was... Show me how you do that. Uh, well, I, was, I just put out a, a hip-hop album called Money Cat, and I was on radio in Melbourne being interviewed by Sophie Cunningham, who's an amazing writer and editor. And she was like, so what are you working on next? What comes next in the life of an Musa? And I was sort of like... Well, I, I just want to impress her, you know? And I, and I was like, well, I'm sort of working on this Dorothy Porter-esque verse novel about a masturbating arsonist and this and that. And, uh, and then off air, she was like, that sounds absolutely amazing. When can I read something? And I'd literally written like two pages. So I just went home, you know, I wrote for about a month. And that was the first chapter set at the Greyhound races, bunch of young dudes oh, into hip hop so doing cocaine. Uh, definitely not autobiographical at all. And... <laughs> And then I sent that to Sophie, and she was just like, we need to have a meeting about this. So we had a meeting. She said, I don't think you've got enough to give to any publishers, but maybe it's worth a shot. And I happened to know two different people at publishers. One was a mate's boyfriend, and one was the lady who used to run bodacious books in Queanbeyan in the Riverside, not Riverside nice. Plaza, the other Queen Bee Plaza, I think it was Queen called. Bee. And she was at another publisher. So I sent them off. Both of them were interested. And then I had to somehow write a novel, when, and I had no idea what I was doing. And it kind of froze me up, because as soon as there was kind of money and pressure and people were talking about it, mm -hmm. I was like, what have I got myself into? Well, you've only got yourself to blame because you were the guy talking about it. I know. <laughs> but that's the thing. I like to paint myself into a corner, and then there's so, so much overbearing shame at not doing something yep. that then I have to do it. Yeah, very good call. Yeah. Wow. See, I think most write, like, writers always pretend that they're so noble, but I think oftentimes we write out of a sense more of revenge or shame, um, wow. really, than anything else. Yeah, you know, so we can't lionize ourselves too much. So which one was it for you? Uh, mostly shame, but a little bit of revenge as well. I think that always plays a little bit of a part. See, that could go on. To the, the haters, man. It could be Here Come the Dogs. Mostly revenge, a little bit of shame. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, it's a sweet byline. Yeah, I think so. That could be on the, on a poster. I can imagine that. The movie poster. Yeah, well, I mean, movie posters makes me think of your book tour. It's not, it's not like your everyday sort of literary junket thing, right? You, you had music and, and stuff happening. It mm. wasn't just like a book signing. Did you put all that together yourself? Was that all your idea? Uh, most of it, yeah. Most of it was my idea. My publisher helped me out with a few key stops like Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, Brisbane. Mm -hmm. But then there were certain places where they were saying, well, it's not really worth going there. People don't really buy books in, say, Darwin, hypothetically. I heard you something had some like trouble that. in one place where no books 
it. Yeah, I sort of encountered the, the, <laughs> the biggest asshole in the whole publishing industry or bookselling industry somehow. Name um, names. Well, there's only w one bookshop in, in Alice Springs, so oh, it's not go, hard. <laughs> That's why I didn't want to do it myself. I wanted to, yeah. Yeah, it was just insane. He sort of called me the day before the show. I just got into Alice Springs. He said, I oh, yeah, couldn't be bothered ordering the books in. They're not going to sell anyway. And so oh. I kind of paid, you know, however much, $400 to go there. And there were no books. I had to freight them in from Melbourne. Um, but I think he might have just been going a little bit loopy. Yeah, maybe he was just having trouble himself. I think so, because he then started going on about how demanding I was being and wanted to have books at my book launch and <laughs> how much of a diva I was. <laughs> it was just, I mean, it was madness. That's too much. Yeah, yeah. it was too much. So is travelling around like that sort of your lifestyle anyway, or are you more of a home... home no, I'm type? pretty nomadic, really, although yeah. for the last... Um, year of writing the book, I moved back to Queanbeyan mm -hmm. um, just because I needed a bit of peace and quiet after yeah. Mel living in Melbourne three and a half years. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of, it's full of debauchery and temptation on every corner, you know. There's no and debauchery so, and temptation in Queanbeyan? Uh, well, th there's a little bit, but I find it easier to kind of hide away from it. Yep. And, you know, there's only so much debauchery and temptation you can get up to when you're living in a small flat with your mum, oh, really. Yeah, <laughs> So much, not none, not none. <laughs> That's true, that is true. But only so much. Let's I mean, not your go mom there. Seems, your mum seems pretty cool. She's snuck, <laughs> in, she snuck you into train spotting, so she's obviously got a good head on her shoulders. Yeah, she's cool. You know, I always say she's a true believer in the arts. Uh, she has been for a long time supporting the Canberra arts scene. She feels just compelled to support people, young artists, and sometimes even when she's really burnt out, I'll be saying, why, why are you going out to this theatre event or this gallery event? She says, no, I have to, because these young people deserve support and blah, blah. Um, and she always said at a young age that basically with the arts, as far as the arts was concerned, anything goes. You know, she would let me watch anything as long as we could talk about it afterwards. Oh, um, that's so good. And I thought that was really cool because, you know, let's say there's 20 minutes on. from Canberra to Queanbeyan and we would just dissect things, what worked, what didn't work. And I kind of got that critical eye from a young age, which was really, really cool. Which is so good as a parenting style because it means that you don't, it doesn't matter how friggin' crazy the actual work of art ends up. And going into a movie together, you, you don't always know. Like, every, a lot of people walked out of Pulp Fiction halfway, shocked at what they were seeing or whatever. Mm. If the mum's there afterwards, they get to debrief it with you, and so you don't, as a kid, brood on all the wrong stuff. No, but people thought she was stuff. very irresponsible. You know, other parents, sometimes teachers. I remember a teacher in high school saying to me that uh, I'd been raised very poorly because of things like this. Oh, to, you, um, to your face? To my face. Funnily enough, he turned up at my book launch uh, recently and said that he had always known that I had it in me. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. People are shameless, man. It's crazy. <laughs> did, you sign, did you sign the book? I did, yeah. Yeah, nice. There was another guy too that out of the blue, he was, this is another guy I went to high school with who I hadn't had anything to do with in years and years. I didn't even really know he was on my Facebook. And recently I'd put something really stupid and sort of self-aggrandizing up about how George Lazenby, the only Australian James Bond, had yeah. mentioned my name in an ABC interview, which was a huge thing to me. That, that would be huge to anyone. Yeah, That's well, exactly. Me, especially you. a Queanbeyan boy. So I put it up, and then this guy, he'd obviously been holding it in all the time since high school. He just goes, he just wrote, you are so fucking gay. Like, <laughs> haven't heard about it from this guy. Like, and I was just kind of a bit like, oh, okay, well, that's just strange. I don't know, delete, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, but then at my book launch, 
this very lovely lady came up to me and was like, can you please sign this for my son? He went to school with you. And he was just yeah. like, I'm going to give him this book for Christmas. Yeah. And uh, she mentioned the name and it was the same guy. Yep. And so I just, uh, yeah, I said two, whatever. Uh, hugs and kisses, all the best. <laughs> Love, Omar. That's, yeah. <laughs> That's definitely the way to do it. <laughs> so how autobiographical is it? Talking about your mum, I don't, I don't feel like anybody's got a really cool mum in Here Come the Dogs. I feel like there's some, there's some pretty cool parents, but there's no one who's, who's giving guidance like that, who's showing people how, what, how, like, correct me if I'm wrong, you wrote it, but yeah. the characters in this book are all sort of rudderless. Yeah, they're quite rudderless. I mean, I would say the character of Grace shows a lot of strength and resilience uh, in her life. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, part of it is autobiographical. You can't help that when you're writing fiction. You take parts of yourself, you magnify them, you distort them, water them down. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not all the bits that people sometimes assume. And, you know, mm -hmm. for example, obviously it's influenced by Queenbean and Canberra yeah. a lot. But then I want to play fast and loose with that and take imaginative leaps and kind of raise this small town into the arena of myth, really. Nice. Because I think a lot of people do that uh, with coastal towns, outback towns in the mm -hmm. bush. You know, they play a certain part in Australian mythology. Yep. But towns kind of like Queanbeyan don't really because they're sort of weird mixtures of country and cities. Uh, city. They're suburban, got people from all around the world somehow trying to forge a community. Yep. And I wanted to raise that to the level of myth to hopefully say something about Australia. So, I mean, this book is not really about a town. It's about Australian society, I think. Um, I wasn't in the business of making something autobiographical either because I've dealt a lot with my Malaysian-Australian heritage, with my family life, things like that. I thought it was a good opportunity to explore other cultures, for instance, Macedonian culture, Samoan culture. Yeah. Certain choices I made in the book, I, I can either answer it, uh, I can cut it in many different ways. Like people say, yeah. why did you make a Samoan and a Macedonian main character? Yeah. Part of it was uh, a political decision. I want to choose people from two quite small minorities to say, yes, they may be of minority backgrounds, but their stories matter, and we need to look at these stories. And they're emblematic of, of a huge slice of the Australian population. But sure. If this particular group is... is exactly. And it was also kind of laying the challenge down to myself as a human, as a writer. I grew up around people of these backgrounds. Suddenly, when writing the story, I realised, wow, I don't actually know that much about those cultures. I need to delve into them. But then, part of the choice was just chance. I was uh, writing, you know, drafts, and then I happened to go to my friend's wedding in Samoa, and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to make him... Samoan. And so I can kind of cut it in this really philosophical, political way, or just, you know, that's just what it happens to be. That's just what I wrote, and then I followed that as far as I could. Um, so. That works really well. That was um, such an Australian thing. Uh, yeah, so. You know, oh, you yeah. kind of end that. Yeah, so. Yeah, good or how you end a question with or. So, you know, you, do you want to go to the Civic Pub? Or. You can never kind of ask straight out as an Australian, can you? No. Or. How much do you feel like, like how much of your material comes from your past and how much is coming from where you're at now? Like do you ever feel like you're sort of not stuck in the past but do you feel like you do most of your work on stuff that's 
it's way back when when you grew sort up of no I mean look I've been trying to do with my hometown with matters of race and identity and class in my work for a long time but this was just a far bigger canvas than anything I'd worked on before it was me really trying to grapple with these big issues kind of wage the big wars I guess you could say mm -hmm. in the format of a novel in the hope that after that maybe I could move on to dealing with some other issues so for instance you know my next novel I think is going to be more about uh, the Indonesian and Malay archipelago. But this was really about Australia. So, yeah, I had to kind of really pick at certain personal scabs. Uh, I would say oftentimes people think I'm more like Solomon, but I would say certain parts of me are more like Jimmy uh, in terms of feeling very powerless and things like that. And I wanted to magnify those feelings and really push them to the extremes mm -hmm. because I think that's one of the main themes that goes through the book is is powerlessness and so many people feel that uh, because of the chaos that we live in in Australian society and often things that are beyond our control you know and so that's where the metaphor of the dogs comes in that people often ask about uh, you know greyhounds they race and race and race and they're running so fast but they never catch the rabbit that they're the artificial rabbit that they're running after. And the true winner is a man in the stands with a ticket in his hands, you know. And I think a lot of people in Australian society feel that way and feel as if they're living on the margins. And not just people of certain ethnic backgrounds. I mean, I think a lot of Anglo-Australians feel that way as well. Yeah, I mean, it just makes me think of school. I feel like school, everybody feels alienated from everybody else, except maybe two or three people who don't really understand what's going on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who don't realize that they're alienated. I, I have to believe for my own personal reasons that they really are still. <laughs> it's fake. Uh, but yeah, I mean, do you, do you feel like now you've, you've pushed that, do you feel like you've gone as far as you can on that stuff for now? Or is your next, next book after the Indonesian archipelago? Uh, the next, the next town? one I wanted to, I was just thinking to myself, well, you know, literary fiction doesn't really sell that much. So I'm just going to write the corniest thriller just oh, to yeah, give to the masses and yeah. write it under a fake name. But then I started writing this thing set in a futuristic Sydney um, after the apocalypse has happened. Uh -huh. And there's a sleuth called Cole Mirror Man who's searching for a, a killer on the loose. But then as I started, and there were, there were robotic platypi, robotic prostitutes, it was madness. Um, well, obviously autobiographical yeah well exactly uh but then as i started writing it i was kind of like this is actually pretty cool i would maybe <laughs> put my name to this yeah, uh, so, so i've already got the two ideas for the next few novels but no i mean look the matters of class and race and gender and generation in australia are not ones that are just suddenly going to go away in my work because i've written one book i'm sure i'll be dealing with them into old age if you know i get there and um and I think these questions are ones that are going to be raised in Australian letters for probably centuries to come. Yeah, if, if we ever if we that, I don't think we will. last that long, yeah, yeah, well, doubtful. Not that I'm not optimistic, but I just don't have any faith in humanity. No, me is, either. So that's okay. Uh, I mean, you say that Solomon, that people might pin the Solomon comparison on you, uh, and it might not be true, but he, spoiler alert, most of the way through the book, I don't know, how do you feel about spoilers? Let's talk about that. I don't mind. I mean, you see, it's one of those things, like you know that someone is going to start a fire in the book, so it's not a spoiler. Like there was a little bit... You know there's going to be dogs. You know there's going to be dogs. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, what, we, what was the thing you were going to spoil? Well, so, there you go. Sol has to... F he's faced with the choice of whether or not to leave Queen Bian. He has a great opportunity. Right. It's not Queen Bian, by the way. 
the town. I thought we'd establish that, yeah. <laughs> He's faced with the opportunity to leave the town, capital yeah. T, and chooses not to. Right. And I know that you've got that awesome character right there who can criticise him for that and be like, no, you really should, you're wasting your opportunity, this is a terrible decision. But, uh, but it's still left a bit ambiguous. You don't really judge as the... As the writer, you no. just say, no, nope, he's, he's made his choice. It has its goods and its bads, but whatever. Is that, does that really sum up how you feel about escaping from town? Like, you've come back. Are you back for good? Are you, are you back for a little while, but you feel like you've got to get out again? Like I'm not sure about my own approach to Queanbeyan and Canberra, where I stand on that. In terms of the characters, each of them was supposed to represent a different attitude towards Australia as someone of a migrant background. Yeah. So that was the idea with Solomon. I mean, he sees Australia as chaotic and very ugly, but it's the only Australia he knows, and why not work? You know, we have to work with it in some way. Yeah. And I guess I sort of share that. Um, but then another character thinks maybe it's time to move back to the homeland and that mm -hmm. Australia has never tried to accept him. And then another person thinks we should burn the whole place down. And I sort of share some of those sentiments as well. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's what I was trying to express through those different characters, was different attitudes that certain second generationers have towards Australia and the complexities of that and the contradictions as well. Mm. Basically, I mean, that's something I've been trying to get out in my work for ages and ages is how you can love and hate a place in equal measure. It's not easy. No, it's not, but it's life. A lot of people, I mean, how many people here have heard Omar perform before in the past? That's a pretty good woo. I don't know if, uh, if you felt like showing off some of your talent at some point in the f during the show or if you want to do it all at the end. I'm going to give you the option because it's totally up to you. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to just wait and see if it comes up naturally or you just want to... Now? Well, how do you guys feel? I don't know. Yeah, I want to sure. put you on the spot. I just I feel like we're about to. I guess we have direction. been talking about the book, so maybe I should read something from the book. Yeah. No bad idea. Um, and then at the end, I want to try out a whole bunch of brand new material because I'm very sick of all my old spoken word poems. Oh, yeah. So just for you guys, exclusive. Yeah, nice. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> um, That's so my book. yeah, I'm you trying to dog eared a certain page. That yes, you're not here find it is. It. Oh, good. Okay, this is from the end, from the fire scene. It's not a spoiler, I don't think. We all know that it's coming. I want to write about the fire. A monstrous, deranged chaos prevails. A cardiogram of the nation is written into the rumbling flames. From the Air Peninsula to Gippsland to the Blue Mountains, horizons shimmer and bend. The needle on the fire danger sign points to catastrophic and code red. Life and death are both staunch in their will to survive. The large and small clash against one another. Wind, land, water, fire and man embroiled in a tussle with no resolution except that it must happen again. There is sobbing and screaming, sirens, black clouds, cauliflower. Rubber is scribbled on asphalt as trucks swerve through the firewall. Animals seek refuge on highways. Mammals and reptiles next to each other, stunned by fear, arranged as if by design on tar so hot a man's foot can sink in it. Power generators break down and dams are filled with a turbid mixture of ash and silt. In two days alone, a fire truck is burnt to its spine. Ten people lose their lives and hundreds of houses are destroyed. There are rumours of looting and abandoned cars show their ribs to the sky. After the fire has moved on, 
People pick through the carnage of their houses like rag and bone men with tears streaking clear lines down their masks of soot. A woman clutches a photo album to her chest while her husband sifts through bricks and broken pottery and misshapen blobs that were once glass bottles. He stoops, picks up a diamond ring and holds it to the red sun. Of course, sympathy and charity flow, and a school hall is turned into a makeshift camp for the displaced. People who have never met sleep side by side on donated mattresses, and many ask why it took a catastrophe of this magnitude to finally bring forth compassion in Australians. Never been so close to that before. It's almost like a force. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I've never realised just how how much of a a companion while you're while you're delivering your poems, your gesticulation is. Like your hand, it presages points and it illuminates points and, sure. it, and it brings things in and then it, and it builds the suspense totally separate from the prose that you've written or as part of it. I mean, is that something that you practice? Is that I've never seen anybody have the same sort of bobbing and weaving with it. It's like you're a boxer or something. Yeah, I've tried to be very physical with it. My first idea, my first notion of poetry was that it should be performed and be, and be physical because there's a huge, uh, there's a very rich history of that in Malaysia and Indonesia. My dad, when I was about eight years old, he pointed at, the, he, he introduced me to an Indonesian poet who was very famous and said, you see this guy, when he gets up, he doesn't use the page, he just recites it with full force mm -hmm. to a stadium full of people at political rallies, it's living and breathing and bleeding. And I, that really affected me, and I, I always wanted to do a form of poetry like that. Uh, and also, early on, some of my favorite wordsmiths that I paid attention to were all orators. I had quite a religious upbringing, um, and so I would see people delivering speeches at the mosque, and I was really into the black Muslims. Malcolm X was my hero when I was in, like, you know, year eight. And people like Louis Farrakhan, and I, was, I would always watch and I thought it was amazing the way they could modulate their voices and use their hands uh, to get their messages across. And it just seemed like an extra weapon in your artillery to use. And then I would read about orators and the way that they would do it and there were some fascinating things like um, Cicero, the great Roman orator, uh -huh. he said that uh, the, the best hand gesture to use while performing is this. Um, because if you're going like this, you're emphatically putting your point across to somebody, uh, but it's too aggressive, it's too forceful. But if you're kind of going like this, it looks like you're waffling and making it up, whereas this is very precise. And you, if you see someone like Bill Clinton, I'd watch something, someone like that, he, he'll go like this, um, so because it's not, it's not too forceful. But then, of course, you can kind of mix it all together, and you can be like, look, I understand what the opposition is saying. However, the important point here is... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, would, I thought things like that were very were amazing. Um, yeah, wow. And, and then someone like Stanislavski would say in theatre um, that there are, you know, many different ways you can fall off a table or off a stool and evoke different emotions within an audience. You know, there's one way of doing it that will make it seem completely ridiculous and they'll laugh. Then there's another way that will be, look very tragic and you'll feel for that person. Yeah. Uh, so it's the same with your hand gestures, I think. Man, I hope that's not prescient because these stools really don't feel that safe. Well, yeah. That's good. That's good. I also love that we just went through a really fascinating visual explanation for an audio medium. So that's really great. Oh, yeah, pointing, sorry about there's that. some fingers held together. It's cool. <laughs> if, you, if you ever want to look me up, whoever's listening out in cyberspace, uh, I'll explain it all to you in person and it'll make perfect sense, I promise. Uh, 
You, I read something that really caught my eye in a Sydney Morning Herald article about you, with you, mm. in which you were saying that you hadn't really formed the sentences yet to explain, to answer the questions about the book. Someone was obviously asking you questions about Here Come the Dogs and you are like, I haven't really formed those sentences yet. I I'm exploring how to answer these questions. They must be well and truly formed by now. Right? Sort After of. No, not really. I mean, this is the thing. I had less than uh, three weeks between hand... No, less than four weeks, sorry, between handing in the manuscript and having it published in stores. And I was already on the media trail immediately as soon as I'd handed it in. Uh, so a lot of the stuff I'm going on to you, uh, about to you guys is kind of bullshit, really. I haven't had um, Good conversation, enough... we call it. It's good conversation. Okay, good conversation. But I haven't had the distance yet at all. I've been going nonstop since then. Mm -hmm. So I haven't had that perspective to sort of step back and really think about what I was trying to say exactly mm -hmm. or say it with any uh, eloquence or articulation. You're doing all right. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think you'd only figure it out a couple of years away from a book. Mm. Right. So is that sort of how poetry comes together for you? I mean, do you... Does it, do you go over lines in your head or do you sit down and write first and then edit or is it different for every poem? Uh, it's, it's different for every poem. I mean, there's some of them where I just have a, a conception of what I want it to be and then I just go and write the whole thing out in like half an hour or an hour, mm -hmm. straight like that. Don't do any edits in the hope that it'll be more spontaneous and more honest. Mm -hmm. But then there are other ones where I've just got little random images floating around in my diary um, and then I slowly, slowly b bring them together over a long period of time. Maybe. And it was kind of like that with the novel. Uh, I didn't really know exactly where I was going, so I had to kind of uh, write in the dark a little bit mm -hmm. and then keep notes on the side in order to make the, the plot go forward and to have some kind, of some kind of structure. And you said that you went back to Queen Bean for a, a year to write, but do you... I was to save money, really. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Do you, I mean, you seem like you put out a lot of material, like between poetry and, and albums and uh, performances and appearances in the book. I mean, do you feel like you have a, a high workload? Are you a workaholic? Do you I think I am. Pause? Yeah, I don't really have much else going on, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, no, it's a short life. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always very aware of mortality. I was saying this when Chris interviewed me. It sounds very morbid. But, you know, oftentimes when someone in your family dies or a, or a friend, you see on Facebook everyone being like, oh, well, this should remind us how short and precious life is. Mm -hmm. We should think about that every day. But people don't, you know. They act as if they've got so much time and we don't have a minute to waste, really. And so I'm always thinking of that. Like I was living under this burden or the fear that I might get run over by a truck or something before I could get this piece of work out. And I think about that. And it's very, it's very stressful. It's high pressure. <laughs> um, but it's just the way. I'm kind of built, really. That's just the way I think about the world. Right. I don't have any time to waste. So, yeah. yeah, all right. So does that mean that, does that make it easier to refuse all the temptations of living in a, like when you're living in Melbourne? Oh, no, I try to take on some of those as well. Oh, yeah, good. <laughs> it's all fuel for the fire. Yeah. Uh, but but it's mean, a very, it's difficult, you know, it's not an easy life. Like people act as if you're just swanning around having this great time, but you can't turn off. That's the problem when you're a writer, is that every moment, is work because you hear someone f f phrase a sentence in an interesting way and you think, oh, okay, that gives you a new view on the thing happening around you on the bus. Mm -hmm. And it's constantly going. You can't sleep properly. It's lonely. It doesn't give you much room to have any kind of personal relationships. For someone like me, 
um, anyway, because I'm so obsessive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's quite difficult. It's a difficult life. Do you find that people... But it's great. I wouldn't have it any other way either. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. Do you find... I mean, does that make... Uh, that obviously puts a strain on relationships, is what you're saying there. Do you find that people fall, fall into the, the gravity and, and keep up and you bounce ideas off each other, but then eventually... No, I mean, no, not really. I mean, I'm quite an eccentric person, selfish in certain ways, you know, so it would uh, <laughs> take a very particular type of person to be able to put up with me, I think. Uh-huh. Uh... But yeah, it's also, right now, my work is the most fulfilling and important thing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think hopefully in the future I'd be able to develop myself to the point things a bit better. But I'm so new to all of this kind of stuff that I'm still learning how to do that. Yeah. So does, how does that work when you collaborate with people? Because being a hip-hop artist as well, that's rarely a one-man game. Unless you're Kanye. Right. Uh, no, even then, he's a great collaborator. Yeah, that's true. Um, I love collaboration. Uh, do you, you find know? people who can keep up with your pace or who, can, who have your, your same obsession? Yeah, of course. There's heaps of people out there. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the, this, it makes me sad sometimes how many amazing artists there are out there, how many amazing poets and painters and playwrights and musicians who might never get heard. I mean, we're, we're surrounded by them. That's just part of the game, I suppose. But I feel like there's just so many people around me that I could collaborate with. It's, it's not difficult to find them, passionate people. Yeah. Um, Do you have time so to consume that stuff when you're also working so hard? I try to, but it, it's difficult. I mean, you're never going to be able to keep up. Like, they'll, you know, I'm sure I'll be on my deathbed thinking, God, I wish I'd read that book and, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's never, you're never going to be able to do that. But I try to as, as best I can. Yeah, fair enough. You pointed out before when you were talking to your dad, or your dad was showing you that fantastic orator in, in Indonesia. Right. Uh, how he commanded the stage and he had a point to make and he was getting things across. And yet I read somewhere that you were saying that the Malaysian phrase for a storyteller was someone who dismissed worries or who, who a dispeller, a of, dispeller worries, of worries a reliever of sorrows yeah. yeah so i understand that you can strike a balance there but do you i mean do you ever work aside from your cyber romance um detective novel do you ever work do you ever work on things that are just for d- dispelling worries i mean it seems like you're a political animal and and you point at things that society would rather sort of ignore yeah, sometimes I just want to make something very beautiful. And lately I've been thinking about that, especially since the book took me to such dark places and it is dark. Mm-hmm. And it was quite crazy for me to talk to one of my mates who deals a lot with children who have been abused and violence and gang life in America. And he said he couldn't quite get through the book because it was too confronting and brought up a lot of that stuff. And and I thought to myself, oh, wow, that's... Uh, I mean, it's not as if I would change it or anything, mm-hmm. but I think it's time for me to put some more beauty out there into the world to lighten people's burdens a little bit. Do you have concrete plans for that aim? Uh, well, hopefully at the end of this interview, I'll be able to do a few nice little pieces. Oh, that's nice to know. Um, Excellent. Uh, which makes me realise that there's no clock on the wall here. I, I normally keep oh, yeah, time on a thing. On so right. can everybody shout the time at once? Like, can I count you in? Wait, wait, wait. Three. Oh, wow. All right, three, two, one. Eight, 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 two. Whoa, we almost have a consensus. That's okay. Oh, good. Well, look, we've got another 15 minutes or so. So if anybody has any awesome questions for Omar, cogitate, yell them out at some point. That would be really good because, you know, I don't want to have to do all the work. 
uh, mainly lazy. <laughs> Do you want to have a look at my Yeah, what else have you got there? Yeah, what are we missing here? Well, you're prolific. That's really good. Oh, okay, on a mechanical level. That's great. Because I'm a performer too. <laughs> I'm really interested in how you keep it all in your head. Because you just seem to, I mean, you were reading the book there and I understood you read and you edited it and you must have worked on it so much that it's ingrained in your head a bit. But you just put the book down for the last like five lines of that. How does it stay? Does it effortlessly stay? Is your brain built that way? Or do you have to no. work at it? Well, firstly, it's my job. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good. Good answer. No, really, yeah, though. Really I mean, you don't ask a, an actor, like, oh, how do you remember all those lines? I, I mean, would. That's, well, but that is, okay, maybe <laughs> you would. That's my job. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Touche. Well, I don't know. It's just, that, that's just part of the job description to remember it all. And it's got better and better over the years just with a whole lot of repetition and practice. I don't mm -hmm. think I was originally very good at memorising things, but now I am because I just have to do it all the time. Do new things push old things out? Yeah, sometimes. Constantly I'm just trying to create new work. And, and also, sorry, it makes it easier to memorise it because I wrote it. Like, mm -hmm. it, um, I wrote it in a way that seems natural and in terms of my thought processes and everything. So mm -hmm. it's kind of easy for me to keep up with that. Yeah, you can think, what would have Omar have written here? I am Omar. Yeah, yeah exactly. fantastic. Rhymes are easy to remember for some reason as well. Oh, that's as old as time, right? A, yeah. Like the old awesome Norse Skellig writers or whatever they were, they were always like, it was always metaphor and rhyme, rhyme and metaphor, yeah. and the, the two things that can keep things in your head. You seem to have a good grasp of both of those things, so I think you're way ahead of the Norse. Well, <laughs> doing, a great, doing a great job. Um, although, that makes me wonder, I mean, you write so forcefully about Australia, and you obviously have some really experience in Indonesia and Malaysia, like Parang. Parang? Parang, mm -hmm. Parang yeah. Parang. It's fantastic reading. Have you ever, are you ever going to write out of your context? Do you ever want to go to Brazil? Or oh, definitely. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about trying to write something set in Guatemala. I was there for a couple of months. Yeah. And I thought that would be really amazing. It's just all a matter of time, man. It's just, <laughs> there's only so much I can do. Yeah, right? You could <laughs> die at any moment. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right now. Hopefully. I feel like I am right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, and... and that's the problem with releasing the book. You work so hard in the book and you get it, and what's the reward? A huge lack of the one thing you need the most. I wouldn't be here taking up two hours of your time if you hadn't come out with a really excellent piece of work. It seems like an unjust reward. Like, all you want is time, right? Yeah, well, exactly. You and you get, you get less and bar. less. Yeah, you get less and less as it all goes on. But, you know, you just have to keep up with it. It's a privileged position to be in. There's so many people who have written novels and never got them published, never got them out there, songs, whatever. People have killed themselves, you know, about not being able to get their book published. So it's a huge, uh, it was a huge responsibility to do a good job with this. I knew that. It was a privilege. Wow, it's great that you have these, this, this strong sense of ethics on the forefront of your mind. It seems like you're driven by these moral concerns. It's really cool. Is that true? Uh, Am I just p painting that? I don't know. It's, it's, one part of me thinks that I'm a very amoral man, and I certainly don't think... I'm a moral arbiter of, of all that's good or anything. I don't, and that's why I try to write stuff that doesn't have any judgment or the authorial voice sort of coming in and casting judgment on something. And, mm -hmm. and people sometimes find that frustrating, I think, because especially when you get questions like, uh, oh, you know, should poets be political? And oftentimes what they mean is should they be polemicists, you know, and be pushing a certain political ideology? And I don't think they should be. I mean... Art, by its very nature, is political mm -hmm. um, because life is, and it also depends on who's telling a certain story. Uh, but I don't think you should be forced into that, and I, and I don't like that type of work either. 
but purely selfishly, if you if you were thinking about your legacy, the people you brought up tonight, like like Cicero, uh, they are they are political people, and it's their message that the vehicle is beautiful, but there's a lot of beauty that that disappears. It's the politics that like stays alive. For mm, I don't know about that. I think it's the story. It's the archetypal story. Cicero was different. I mean, he was a lawyer and orator, but mm. you know, great storytellers are talking about something quite universal and within the human condition and the human soul. Our rises and our falls and our loves and and hates. Um, I think those are the things that actually last longer than all the kind of political or cultural colour around a story. Mm, so the, the politics and the culture is setting and the actual themes are the important thing. Partly. I mean, I don't think I had really a political point to this book. I mean, it's, it's angry in certain ways about the way our society is headed, a combustible society uh, heading maybe towards environmental destruction and increasing conservatism, things like that. Yeah. Uh, but part of it was more just quite a cliched, straightforward point that these are ordinary people and their lives matter, even though they get reduced so often in Australian society. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> hopefully someone like me with my particular ethnic or religious background will encourage other people of those backgrounds who felt voiceless before to mm -hmm. step up to the plate and tell their stories. And I think that's really cool at the moment in Australian letters that people of minority backgrounds who might not have engaged with literature before or felt brave enough to tell their stories are starting to do so. And it's getting browner. Yeah, do you think... <laughs> that's great. I'm yeah. glad to see it. Did the, do you think that poetry... Like, do you think the slam poetry and its connection to hip-hop as well, do you think that's the way in? I think it's a good way in. Um, it's deeply flawed, slam po poetry, I think, but it's a very dynamic and accessible form. What would you change about it? Uh, well, What's the, the problem is with slam poetry is that it's a competition and it's putting something that I don't think should be, which is poetry, into a competitive format, which is great uh, in terms of getting people into it, yeah, making it more dynamic, giving something to the audience. But it's got to the point now uh, where it's, you know, people take it too seriously. They see that certain issue-based poetry works to win judges over. So it's becoming more homogenised, and I don't like that. And shoutier poetry. It's shoutier as well, yeah. There's certain things you can do that you know will appeal to kind of a lefty, do-goodery crowd. Which is the crowd that's going to come to a poetry slam. Totally. Because if you can afford fine cognac and cigars, then you have a gentleman's club to go to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And one part of me says, like, oh, that's really cool. At least there's a spot in Australian society, given the current climate, that people can actually talk about these mm -hmm. things. Uh, but uh, another part of me thinks that it's kind of shameless and I'm, and I'm a bit sad that maybe I played a part in, <laughs> in encouraging all of that. Are you involved with the community of fantastic slam poets at the moment? Like, do you hang out with Luke Lesson and Will Small and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know all those guys, but I also try to stand apart. I don't like to be part of cliques or groups or anything like that. Is there I think a clique? Uh, yeah, well, I think there are just in, in, in music there are always cliques, in mm -hmm. hip-hop there are, in poetry, whatever. But I think it's more important just to stand alone. I mean, I've always done that from a young age. And it's better, uh, I think, to be an outsider because you can get more of a perspective on things. If you're starting to buy into groups or cliques, then, uh, yeah, I don't think... You're, well, your art suffers because of that, I would say. Mm, good point. Uh, I mean, obviously, Queen Bean would be, it's an opportunity there, because there aren't enough people to form a clique, are there? <laughs> totally. That's my one, that's my one There's the new arts shed, the queue. Yeah. They've got the new sculptures down next to the river. Oh, that's good to hear. Sculptures in the river in the shape of trolleys with algae on them and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, do you reckon that were you did you were you involved in shopping trolleys and uh, you know things that were? I don't want to. I don't want you to involved in shopping trolleys. I don't want to. I don't want you to purge yourself on the record because this is going to be saved for a thousand years by the the national archives. But I mean, do, did it inform your art being in a lawless sort of <laughs> area? No, I don't think it's here. lawless. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the thing. Sometimes people think that I'm trying to say it's like some fucking ghetto or something like that. It's not, but it definitely has a semi rough side, and I saw that growing up. But then I went to a private school, you know, so I saw... And that made me realise that there are different worlds in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was sort of growing up in a place in the flats that were great in some ways, but also a place where you saw a hell of a lot of domestic violence very, very regularly... Uh, especially in the 90s, a lot of heroin abuse, dealing, things like that. But then going to a private school, suddenly seeing, wow, okay, there's this other side of Australia that doesn't see that. Um, and these worlds are coexisting in a very small place. And, and there is class in Australia. That's what it made me realise. Um, so, no, it's not, it's not lawless, but, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a working-class place that has its rough edges and... I want to write about that because oftentimes people ignore that when they're trying to put up this glossy kind of facade about their view of Australia. What's the function of exposing the, the lawlessness stuff? Is it just awareness or do you think that it'll actually make a change? Just oh, by make it a change? <laughs> can you? Is that a goal of yours? No. You avoid that. You don't. I don't think poets can really change anything. You have that great line about left-wing... Left um, activists sipping red wine and talking yeah, about Yeah, I mean, policy and guns change things, you know. Um, I think poets can help alleviate some of the sorrows. They can describe the world. They can help us understand ourselves. Poets and musicians can help change a few minds on an individual basis, but we can't aggrandise them too much. I mean, great. there's not been one great song that has changed the world, you know. The people wanting that to happen, I think, is very naive. But mm -hmm. songwriters and poets... What's that? Hold on a second. What's that? How good was that? Yeah, it was good, but <laughs> did it mean that uh, Aboriginal people's life expectancies suddenly went through the roof, you know, or up to equal with other people's? No. I mean, it go music and poetry goes hand in hand with other social movements, mm -hmm. but I don't think it, it leads the way. Oh, so it's a reflection, not the leading edge. It's a support. Fuck, what do I know? Echo. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But I think there's just always this thing, like, you know, can music change the world? Can poetry change the world? And we like to think that we can. But if we're being really honest, I mean, all we can hope for is to um, provide a little bit of in insight and relieve some burdens um, on an, quite an individual basis and make the world a tiny bit more tolerable. Dispel some worries. Yeah, dispel some worries. You could call that a revolutionary act, but I don't know. I think that's focusing on the symbolism over material change a little bit too much. And that's something that um, people on the left are too preoccupied by and is too alluring, I think. Do you reckon, do you reckon you'd ever get into politics? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Why would I want to? No. Then where would, when would I get the time to write cool books and poems and songs? Oh, uh, yeah, good point. Hey, Winston Churchill did some lovely paintings while he was in office. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I actually <laughs> write a lot of my stuff in the bath like Winston Churchill. See, that's the kind of scoop. There's I'm an image you can take hour. away with you. Yeah, please. <laughs> the bath. 
Yeah. That's fantastic. Does that mean that you're not going to stay somewhere unless it's got a decent bath? Like when you're looking at a rental property, do you go straight to the bathroom? I love having a good old bath. I mean, it's it's quite a sordid activity, isn't it? Well, it depends what you're doing. No, it is. But, <laughs> but just in general, in general, you're, you're in sitting water. in your own muck. Yeah, and the water is a lens and yeah. it, all it does is magnify basically <laughs> your needier belly button. Yeah, and yeah. your rubber ducky. Yeah, exactly. and rubber ducky. He's yeah. the one who makes bath time lots of fun. Uh, no one's going <laughs> to underestimate the value of rubber ducky. How do you keep your pens and paper and stuff from, from getting wet? Or it's um, all up here, in the head? Some of it's in the head. Visual. Some of it's... Uh, <laughs> this is really weird. Some of it's on my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a small bath. bath, so your knees are kind of up. The laptop rests there. It's dangerous, man. We need to run a Kickstarter for a bigger bath with a platform that you can put See, your See, this is what I'm on. talking about. You know, you've got to live on the edge. An artist should risk it all <laughs> every time. You're at any moment that laptop could fall in the bath. Exactly. You might not finish your book. And that's it. Yeah. Wow. And I warned you. I told you. I didn't have long to go. That's an enduring image of the <laughs> suffering artist lifestyle that you live, man. I'm, that it's really, really gives sad me, and pathetic, isn't it? No, that gives me an insight into your life like nothing else has. Yeah, there so we go. I really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> look, that's... That's what, I'm so content with the bath time image, I'm happy to wrap it up there. But I wonder if anybody else is, has got any burning questions before I, I do. Because this is a great opportunity. I'm getting sick of, I think you're sick of me. No way, man. I'm just like, I don't, you, have, you have so much coming up this weekend. You guys might not know this guy's life is crazy. Here's to hang out with Marie Cardi twice this weekend. You're on the book club, right? On ABC? Yeah, 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 I am. Yeah. I'm on... Um, not that she's particularly tiring. She must be, right? She's amazing. Yeah, she's I'm sort amazing. of secretly in love with her. Not so secretly now. I mean, I guess... <laughs> National uh, Archives, <laughs> 1,000 years. That's good. And then I'm doing uh, Men of Letters on Sunday, which should be really cool. Yeah, Alongside Sydney, right? Scott Ludlam and Dicko from Australian Idol. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it's Dicko great. the little guy with the blue hat and the black hair? Is he? No, he's that English guy, isn't he? Yeah. That's Dickie Nee. Okay, yeah. sorry. That's good. <laughs> Dickie Nee. No, he's real. He's a little thing with the... Yeah, but someone is into... Did you hear about the woman who was stalking aggro? <laughs> The guy, the aggro guy, there was a big Today Tonight special. That it was is like, awesome. it's unbelievable, a star of Australian television. You will know who he is. And then you actually <laughs> watch the show. And it's like, it's the guy from aggro. And, and he's saying like, oh, I wonder what aggro would say about this. He was a real a misogynist bastard, wasn't he, aggro? He? he was. He was, yeah, he was a creep. Oh, well, I guess he was only like knee high of the back. Oh, no, he's like the monster with the Yeah, with mouth. the mo mono brow. Yeah. It's pretty aggro. Oh, I, mean, I remember when I, was a <laughs> when I was a kid, I went to the aggro live show. It was in like Belconnen or something like that. Yeah, the mall. And it was, it was yeah. <laughs> and it was crazy. He was just a full-on sleaze. Like, it was quite offensive, you know. Really? Even at that young age. Well, because he can my see from the Dad had, you know, put his hands over my ears. Yeah, well, exactly. Were well, you taken up on stage? No, 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 no. I was oh. just watching. Yeah, yeah. nice. So I even had a, I had a moral compass even back then. Yeah, so which is worse, aggro live at Balkan Mall or transporting for a young child? Which is like, which is going to end you up in a worse place? Which should parents aggro? Because he was always talking about like he was trying to look under the skirt of like the girls. He was making comments about the girls' asses and everything like that. Wow, that sucks. I'm <laughs> glad he's getting stalked. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm well, not. Well, I no, come on. Look, you know. No, you're right. This is a PC program. Um, although the bath image. Yeah. Should I do some coming. poetry? Please. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. I'm going to try two brand new ones on you. One is the one that I'm going to do at Men of Letters. So the idea of Men of Letters, uh, usually it's called Women of Letters, is they get a whole bunch of people together, sometimes scientists, actors, poets, whatever it is, singers and get them to write a letter to a woman who changed their life 
So it's really cool. Um, but this time it's men of letters, so it's all men doing it. And I wrote to Billie Holiday. Nice. So it's called Dear Lady Day. Dear Lady Day, before I saw a picture of you, head tilted back, making your fingers snap with a half smile, styled in a white dress, hair pinned with triple flowers. Before I saw the expressive eyebrows, the white teeth and foul mouth rinsed in whiskey and creme de menthe, I heard a voice. Day one, when mum pushed a tape with her thumb into the cassette player of our old white Mazda, I heard a voice, scarred and exquisite, gold leaf and gutter, cigarettes and syrup, tough as the bed of nails you slept on, transmuted into playful buoyancy, a voice of fire on a black river of tape, toying with the rhythm, smoke cloying and written into sacks, strings and keys, the black river of highway unfolded before my family of three, we listened. My father told me that most pop music was sinful, so I was only allowed a small selection of tapes, but somehow you and Bob Marley made the cut. <laughs> was it that he couldn't understand exactly what you were saying, your backstory, sex, drugs, on parole, the bath of mustard water you sat in to get rid of the baby, your proclivity for men and women, or was it something in your voice that affected him too? On every road trip from Queanbeyan to Queensland, we were transported into 50s nightclubs with a dusty crackle. We worked that tape to death. Why not take all of me, you said. And we did. Dear Lady Day, the world is as large as it is close. The right type of voice with all its jagged or wetted edges can cut through an ocean, through a generation or three. So when you spoke of strange fruit in the south swinging from trees, I'd heard similar tales of similar fruit on the south coast of New South Wales if the yarns and whispered history of old fellas was to be believed. And those scars you had, yeah, we saw plenty of those in Canberra and Queanbeyan in the 90s. People on the nod, each bearing a brutal map of stars on the arms, pinpointing the direction to hurtful gods. And when you spoke of your man, who wasn't true, who beat you too, when you asked, what can I do? I knew, up close, what you meant. Up close about charming, violent men, about what a poisonous addiction they can be, about the beating hearts of the beaten trapped within flat block cement. They say it was your sax player, Lester Young, who you truly, truly loved, though most likely you were never lovers. There's footage of you singing fine and mellow, reuniting with him on stage for the very last time. The smoke drifts, you and he, both close to the end, and you both know it. In black and white, Lester steps forward and plays the purest solo on God's green earth. You lean forward towards him, some type of wonder in the eyes. Look down, nod, smile, a strange, small smile. And as you said, that smile might not have been a smile at all, or the things it could have been. When the white Mazda ran out of miles, the cassette era ran out too. We replaced the tape with a live CD, but this one wasn't quite the same. It wasn't one of your good days, your words unintelligible, that voice sapped and hopeless. When my mum explained how young you had died and from what, I felt sorry for you. But nowadays, not so much, because we all die we all yearn, we all shine, all burn, bearing witness to each other's rises and falls. We are unified in our pain and that other thing that it bears, beauty. You lived the way you wanted, this bright hyphen between darkness and darkness. And it wasn't about perfection, it was about feeling. 
But somehow, somehow that made it perfect. Yours truly, Omar. I'll do one more. Is that cool? Can I do one more? Yeah. Go on, mate. Go on, mate. <laughs> Fucking hell. I don't have a name for this. Maybe you guys can help me come up with one. I feel a ferocity in me, a talons out, tiger teeth ferocity. It's that of a man who faced too many polite brush-offs and fuck yous, too many journalists with bloody shirt fronts and airports that blur into one, of he who dwells where the bird of paradise plumes in a syringe and the pills fall like fresh rain, the ferocity of a prince who writes a eulogy for the king who still lives, of the flag with no land, the land with no flag, the border that's had its back broken again and again and again, the ferocity of a last kiss, I feel that. But these things, all of these things, I inhale them and push them out as ink-dressed dancers. I don't write poems to write my wrongs. Nowadays, I write poems to write my wrongs down. But still, call it alchemy. This light, this stage, this mic, this voice, this story, this thing that dervish dances between us, that pushes and pulls, making a continuum of all that is, that induces in us some kind of trance, some holy dance, call it into being, call it alchemy, when a neighborhood wins its first championship in 43 years, when cars are honking all the way up Redfern Street, trailing red and green streamers, when white boys and hijabis and kuris, bankers and shopkeepers, Junkies and businessmen are all united as dreamers. And I'm supposed to be a Raiders fan, but even I'm willing to jump on the bandwagon on a fucking day like today. So call it alchemy, yeah. Call it alchemy when her lowest moment becomes her most glorious harmony, when that baby left on the steps becomes a statesman, when a beathead chops the sample just right and you're with your boys, freestyling in a vacant lot and it is pure joy, and the tip of that J burnt, turns into a burning branch to put out the eyes of the cyclops. Call it alchemy when the light shines exactly behind her hair, each strand incandesced into something so rare, I promise I strung 60 of my heartbeats into a necklace for you, one for every breath we take in a minute. This moment lasts less than a second, but at least we dwelled in it. Call it alchemy when the day comes that we no longer see the other as a potential enemy. We just see their potential and call forth all your courage when the final bell tolls and the faceless shows its golden face and you walk arm in arm with yourself over that final starlit mile. Thank you. Oh yeah, alchemy, there we go. Nail it. Yeah. Mr. Chris. Just on South Sydney before we go. Because that was exciting. That was awesome. Russell Crowe, I went straight to his Twitter account because he's a prolific Twitterer <laughs> yeah. and he loves South Sydney. You have a Russell Crowe connection. I just made that connection then. Right. You played at his birthday, didn't you? No, Performed. I had... He threw me a birthday party. What? This year at his house in um, Coffs Harbour. You kept that under your hood? You could have opened with that. That's cool. Really? I don't know. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> That's kind of shameless. No, it's great. But then again, I am very shameless. But um, no, he invited me to come and perform at this weird variety show he was throwing. It was the strangest lineup. I thought it was like this dude from Grinspoon, then me, then like One Direction's producer. And 
It was just so bizarre. Was the producer's act that he like picked five boys out of the audience and put them together? Yeah, and just played guitar. Yeah. He was a very cool guy. But um, Dan, it was my 30th birthday while I was up there and uh, I didn't know anyone and I didn't realize I would be staying with him on the on the big property. And so I kind of <laughs> wrote in this email and I was like, hey man, this will seem really weird, but my 30th is actually going to be on this date and I don't know anyone in Coffs Harbour besides you. Uh, do you want to have a drink or something? Like, <laughs> you know? and, um, and he just wrote this email back, just one sentence, and it just goes, don't worry, mate, you will be celebrated. <laughs> RC. And, right. <laughs> it's completely strange. Um, and so, yeah, I got to, I mean, some of the, like, it was just weird. Some of those guys who were playing, like I met them up there on the property and it's just this whole different world. And it's kind of, you know, it was cool. He was very hospitable, very intelligent, charismatic man. Um, but that world is not really something I want to be a part of, that whole kind of glitz and glamour thing. It was interesting to see for like a, a week um, or a few, few days. Um, but I think, again, as I said, if you buy too much into all of that, into that lifestyle, into the kind of sugar highs of kudos and all that, then you won't um, hold yourself to the same standards as a writer and, uh, and I think it will be detrimental to you. But anyway, it was good fun. It was mad. Oh, well, guys, join me in thanking Omar for coming with us tonight. This is great. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for listening to our live episode with Omar Musa, recorded in Canberra at Civic Pub. Thanks to Meg O'Connell for putting it on and Dave Howe for doing the sound and, of course, all the fantastic people who came along. It was quite a crowd. I was very flattered, as you could probably tell at the beginning there. If you liked what you heard and you're in Melbourne, come to one of our live shows first Wednesday of every month at Some Velvet Morning in Clifton Hill. Or if you're not around or if you just like listening to things like this rather than being there in person, I encourage that because I'm a podcast listener myself. So check out circus impresario Tom Davis from Circus Oz or Jess Kelly, a fantastic artist. Or if you're a music person, we have Skyscraper Stan, one of my favorite musicians in town. Or Rich Davies, who tells an amazing story about recording his first album as a way of saving his own life. Uh, if you check us out on Facebook and Twitter, you can tell us what you thought. They're both Wait Long by the River at their respective websites. Or you can send us an email, oldschool, at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. To you guys, right? You've never. Has anybody actually listened to the podcast before? Yeah. That's great. That's. I was expecting just one. Me. Yep.